Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show today. A lot of stuff going on. Um, just learned this morning that the president of Haiti was assassinated. Um, I, I watched a news segment on that, and then I went back and watched a documentary on Haiti and the president of Haiti and the political situation in Haiti. And holy shit, um, I highly recommend, if you have the time, the two videos I tweeted out this morning, both the news segment on the Haiti president being assassinated and uh, the Vice documentary on Haiti. Check that out, because it will blow your socks off. You'll be like, Jesus Christ, this is wild. Um, highly recommend that. So we're not going to cover that in detail. It would take me 35 minutes to break down everything that's going on in Haiti. Uh, but suffice to say, terrible situation. Haitian president assassinated. Um, but what we are going to talk about, we, I got a lot more on Afghanistan today. We'll talk about that. I have uh, MSNBC hosts who are coddled whining about Americans not working enough. Um, corporate media has taken some pot shots at breaking points. We have Mitch McConnell's brain malfunctions live right in front of our faces. A story about the healthcare system um, in the UK and how it's saving lives and making it so people don't go bankrupt. And um, Charlie Kirk. Charlie Kirk, it's another example of uh, he becomes very confused and accidentally ends up advocating for left-wing economic policies. So I find that kind of hilarious. And then, oh, later on in the show, uh, if we have time, we'll, we'll get to um, Woke Raytheon. Woke Raytheon is a thing, ladies and gentlemen. Woke Raytheon is a thing. <laughs> All right, so without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And um, I'll do that with your Afghanistan update. So Afghanistan has been in the news a lot lately because the United States is drawing down. Of course, recently we left Bagram Air Force Base. That's, um, that was our biggest base in Afghanistan, uh, basically the size of a small city. Apparently, at its peak in 2006, between 2006 and 2010, they kept like 100,000 U.S. soldiers there. So... Um, we drew down, and listen, got to give credit where credit is due. Now, ultimately, will Biden fully withdraw from Afghanistan? Again, that's yet to be seen. It's very, very likely he's going to keep, you know, some number of contractors there, some number of troops to continue to train the Afghanistan military. So, yet to be seen. My guess is there'll be at least, like, a thousand U.S. operatives there, even when we're fully out. And uh, that's not fully out. Fully out means fully out. But hey, credit words do in the sense that we withdrew from the base. It's a big news story. But what's happening, what's happening right now is exactly what I predicted and what I told you guys would happen, which is all of the sudden, now the media is getting incredibly, sorry, incredibly critical of what's happening. So when we were there, and a thousand things would go wrong on a daily basis, there was next to no reporting about it. Like the example I always go to is you would think that when we learned that we were allied with warlords who had child sex slaves, you would think that that story would have been so big that it was like a week-long scandal and every media outlet was covering it with their hair on fire saying, what are we doing? I thought we were there to fight for freedom and democracy and human rights, and instead we're propping up child rapists. But nobody really talked about it. 
Nobody really talked about it. There's another fact from three or four years ago, something like that, where I think it was in an L.A. Times article I was reading, um, or maybe Washington Post article, where they said that even after we've been there for over 15 years at the time, the Taliban now controls more territory in Afghanistan than they did when we invaded. So in other words, by any objective metric, we are losing the war and the outcome that we say we want to facilitate, the opposite is happening. And so, and then of course, you know, the last time maybe a big story that was critical blew up in the media was when we bombed a hospital in Afghanistan. You remember that? And we ended up killing massive numbers of civilians. That was the one that did, to be fair, that one, the media did cover that uh, a little bit, and they should have. But point is, if you look at the totality of Afghanistan coverage, we were there for 20 years, and there would be times, and I, obviously I follow the news incredibly closely because it's my job. There would be times where we'd go one year, two years, and I'd see like next to no stories about the fact that we're in Afghanistan, even though it's a war. It's a war. In the Middle East, we wasted $7 trillion, and we have nothing to show for it. And there's war profiteering happening. Uh, you know, our people have died. Civilians on the other side have died. You would think that this would get the hair on fire coverage. I mean, when, remember when that big um, Afghanistan report came out? I think this one was, was it Washington Post or New York Times? One of the big papers uh, released, released, like, the Afghanistan papers, and it showed all the ways in which, you know, everything's been a sham, and the war is totally aimless, and, you know, the speculation is that, of course, the real reason we're there has a lot more to do with geopolitics in the sense that we're trying to keep China and Russia at bay, maintain control of a vital region of the world, has more to do with extraction of natural resources, trillions of dollars in mineral wealth, opium fields. So that's the real reason why we're there. But the Afghanistan papers were in and out of the news in like two days. What? What? Because whenever there's, there are facts out there that cut in an anti-war direction, it just doesn't get the same legs. Now that the media thinks they could pressure Biden from the right, and pressure Biden and the administration from a pro-war perspective, now all of a sudden the media is all in on that. So there was an article that came out the other day. I was tweeting about this because uh, my jaw hit the ground. It's in the Wall Street Journal. Listen to this title. This title's out of this world. U.S. exit from Afghanistan seems illogical. Why it's happening anyway? American political mood dictates, this is a subtitle, American political mood dictates a departure after nearly 20 years despite the myriad security and humanitarian risks. U.S. exit from Afghanistan seems illogical. Illogical. That represents the tone of virtually every article I've seen since we started to draw down. It's always hair on fire, hair on fire. The implication is like, why do we leave? We should probably get back in. Again, when a thousand things go wrong when we're there, there's no prodding for us to get out. But when we start getting out, the prodding begins for us to stay in. The dirtiest trick I've seen, and they do this with all of our wars, is that whenever, um, whenever violence is down, they'll say, great, violence is down because we're there, so we need to stay there to make sure the violence stays low. Whenever violence goes up, they say, oh, well, we've got to stay there to reduce the violence. So notice, the game is rigged. The game is rigged. They already have their conclusion in mind, and they just work backwards from it. 
If violence is up, we should stay in. If violence is down, we should stay in. They just want to stay in. They just want to stay in. Um, so let me give you a further update of what happened here. Turns out that the U.S. left in the middle of the night from the base and didn't even tell the commander that they were getting out. So let me give you that and a couple more updates. This is a video from Al Jazeera English breaking it down. Things are quiet at Bagram Air Base, once the nerve center of America's longest-running war. 100,000 U.S. troops were here during the course of the past 20 years, the final ones leaving quietly on Friday. The Afghans are in charge now, but the question is, which Afghans and for how long? Shopkeepers nearby are worried about more than their source of income. Security issues affect our sales. It's not a problem for us if there are foreign forces here or if they leave, but the fact that the Taliban are taking over the district at any moment affects our work. Sales aren't very good. Most shopkeepers won't invest in their shops because they are worried about the country's future and don't know what will happen. They are also worried that war will break out. Other shops in the southern province of Kandahar are closing and families leaving as the front line approaches in what is now more clearly a war between the Afghan government and the Taliban. Taliban fighters are making inroads in Kandahar. After taking over abandoned outposts, the fighters share their spoils. Elsewhere, in Kabul province, U.S. armored vehicles and weapons, which could potentially be used in the fight against the Afghan government forces. Taliban are capitalizing over that vacuum which has been created by the withdrawal. Uh, so that is why they have intensified the, 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 the conflict and are having a fast battlefield gain, particularly in the north of Afghanistan. Uh, this will, uh, these battlefield gains will definitely strengthen the Taliban's position in any coming uh, negotiations if that is to happen. And as well as this has sent shockwaves uh, from the morale perspective within the government rank and file. Across the north of Afghanistan, government troops have surrendered districts without a fight. More than 1,000 fled to neighboring Tajikistan on Monday. That prompted Tajik President Emomali Rahman to call up 20,000 reserve troops to the border with Afghanistan. It is quite, um, uh, quite remarkable the collapse that we have seen um, during uh, June and now into July, um, you know, beyond, uh, beyond this is the, um, the, either the best expectations of the Taliban or the worst expectations of the Afghan government and the, um, and the Americans. The Taliban's making gains every day. So where does that leave Afghanistan in the post-U.S. era? Andrew Chappelle, Al Jazeera. There's one point that's most important in this conversation, and that is, Whenever we left, this was going to happen. Whenever we left, if we decided to leave in 2005, this was going to happen. If we decided to leave in 2008, this was going to happen. If we decided to leave in 2014, this was going to happen. We decide to leave in 2021, this was going to happen. If we decided to leave in 2039, this was going to happen. So all of the prodding, and to be fair, this, this segment uh, – doesn't really do that, which is why I picked this segment over other segments on Afghanistan, because this actually struck me as like the most benign of all of them. But the media across the board is sort of prodding from the right and acting like the implication is we should get back in. But 
nobody brings up that obvious counterpoint, which is this was going to happen no matter what, no matter what. So should we really stay longer? Should we really waste more uh, U.S. taxpayer money? Should we really waste more U.S. lives? Should we really risk accidentally bombing hospitals in Afghanistan again? Should we really do that? Should we really do that? So here are the options in Afghanistan, guys. Either you have U.S.-backed warlords with child sex slaves have more control and more power. You have a corrupt government with very little public support have more power. Or you have the Taliban have more power. All of those options are terrible. Now, sure, there's a, there's a spectrum, and, and there are gradations, and some are worse than others, of course. But is that our job, to be picking among those options? Is that really our job? And then, of course, we got the news. I believe it said, uh, so China immediately, as soon as we withdrew or started to withdraw, uh, they announced that they're going to make Afghanistan part of their Belt and Road Initiative. And I think the number was $62 billion. They're going to invest $62 billion in infrastructure in Afghanistan. And, of course, the, it, it's a deal with the devil in the sense because they invest in, in their infrastructure, and then in return you get access to natural resources. And um, this is a sort of debt servitude new version of imperialism. So our version I've, – I've described this before, but bear with me. Um, so the original version of imperialism was what? You show up on somebody's shores, you got guns pointed at them, or, you know, further back you go, swords, whatever, pointed at them, and you're like, um, this is now ours. All of this is now ours. We are conquering you. So that's the old school version of imperialism. Then there were a number of, uh, slowly but surely, we saw a number of evolutions in the way that it's done. And um, the United States version of it was, instead of us, invading somewhere and just telling people, mine, we take people from their own countries. They become uh, installed as puppet dictators to the U.S. And so nominally, it doesn't look like we're that involved because we're not directly involved. We just have a puppet to U.S. corporate interests, you know, running a country. And so then they give you access to a lot of the natural resources of the respective country in question. And so it was a slight evolution because instead of, you know, us being there directly in most instances, we're putting a puppet in there and then the puppet sort of, um, you know, takes advantage of and, and exploits and oppresses their own population and the natural resources. Um, and then what China's doing is they're actually going a step further. They're like, what if we gave a lot of countries some tangible benefit? What if we actually gave them something that they really value? They'd be willing to make a deal. And so that's the Belt and Road Initiative, where you invest a lot of money in basically building up the infrastructure, various countries, and in exchange for that, it's, okay, we get access to your markets and we get your natural resources. So that's the next evolution of imperialism, because up front, to a lot of, a lot of these countries, that seems like a sweet deal. And in the case of Afghanistan or, or Iraq, I mean, obviously, we sort of did overstep, and we, we didn't, weren't even doing the U.S. version of imperialism of, like, let a puppet run the country and we'll stay out, but let us take your natural resources. In the cases of Afghanistan and Iraq, it was very much more like, we're also just going to occupy the country now. And, yes, that's going to breed resentment. Now, the other thing is, it, 
I mean, it'll be interesting to see the, how rational China is in dealing with this, because there's a reason why Afghanistan is called the graveyard of empires. There's a reason why that's the case. And if, if China is going to cut a deal with the current government in Afghanistan, this corrupt government with very little public support, and that government is going to fall, because it probably is going to fall, then what does China do then? Because the Taliban is going to want China out just as much as the Taliban wanted the U.S. out, just as, you know, just as much as um, the Taliban wanted the Soviet Union out. The Mujahideen wanted the Soviet Union out. So the graveyard of empires, but it, it, it'll be interesting to see how they manage all that. But suffice to say, up front, it's a much more um, intelligent approach to imperialism because it's like, we'll give you something you actually want. It'll be very tangible. We'll build up your infrastructure massively. And then in return, you know, we, we get some things. We'll make you a deal you can't refuse. Very mafia-like move. But, I mean, look, this gets to the current position of the U.S. as an empire in decline. It's very obvious we're an empire in decline. All of the signs of decline are there. And this is just sort of speeding up the process. Now, again, by the way, this does not mean that, oh, since China is going to do imperialism, we should continue doing it first. We should keep doing the wrong thing because if we don't do the wrong thing, then they're going to do the wrong thing. The wrong thing is the wrong thing. <laughs> it doesn't make it right because we do it. That's, that's the neocon thinking. That's the American exceptionalist thinking. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's where all the pressure is coming from now. The media, um, the establishment, they're all sort of prodding Biden from the right, prodding, prodding him from a more pro-interventionist position. And, listen, the Taliban is going to keep taking over territory. So then the question becomes, is Biden going to buckle at some point and be like, all right, send back in whatever, whether it's drones or um, air power or what have you, is he going to do it? Yet to be seen, but the game is rigged, man. And I have to say, one of the things that keep, uh, kept coming to mind as I was looking at the unanimity of the media on this is Operation Mockingbird, how, you know, you had the intelligence agencies in the U.S. infiltrate the media, and they set the narrative. And, you know, that's the way it works with a lot of these mainstream media idiots. It's whatever anybody in the intelligence agencies says it's reported as fact, even though it's been proven over and over and over, these people are full of shit, whether it was the buildup to the Iraq war, whether it was Russiagate. People are full of it. So you'd have to verify what our intelligence agencies are saying. But we didn't do that. We didn't do that. They just report it uncritically. And so, you know, Operation Mockingbird, I'm sure there were CIA operatives actually in the media. Is that still the case? Maybe, probably, honestly. But if not that, they just listen to their press releases and run with it. So that's why you see the media across the board, you know, framing this drawdown as a huge mistake. Framing it as like being idiotic. But again, if you're looking at the situation objectively, way more things were going wrong when we were there anyway. They just didn't cover it that much. The media didn't talk about it that much. Or if they did, it would be in and out in the news in one cycle. But the, the sustained prodding and outrage is going to be from the right, going to be from a pro-interventionist position, and that's exactly what we're seeing right now. So just remember, whenever we were going to leave, this was going to happen, whenever we were going to leave. So if anything, this should say we should have ripped off the Band-Aid sooner. But your options are going to be U.S.-backed warlords with child sex slaves, a corrupt government with little public support, the Taliban, and also China's going to spread their influence further. And they're going to, you know, 
probably going to do it no matter what, but they're more likely to do it with the government if the government maintains power. It looks like, as of right now, it looks like they probably won't in the long term, and the Taliban will basically control the whole country. But, you know, don't fall for the nonsense about how we're, the reason why we need to stay is think about the women living under Sharia. It's unacceptable. It's so sexist and misogynist. We, we're best buddies with Saudi Arabia. We're best buddies with Saudi Arabia. They have women's rights activists locked up right now. Right now. So don't give me this bullshit about how, oh my, because we're against religious law. But one of our top allies has religious law. Beheading people in the public square for sorcery and witchcraft. Fuck out of here. See, that's what I'm saying. It's all the reasons that they give. The government doesn't even bother to give any anymore, but the, the ones that the media comes up with, it's such obvious bullshit. But we have a bunch of idiots and a bunch of, you know, naive people in the media who will go wherever the intelligence agencies say and wherever the Pentagon says. And so, again, that's why you've got to come to a loudmouth idiot YouTuber like myself to get anything resembling the truth. Morning Joe is probably the most hilarious MSNBC, MSNBC show, excuse me, almost said MSNBC host, um, because they're all coddled, pampered little pricks. They're super elitist, and um, they're really smug. So I have just a perfect example of that exact dynamic right here. Joe is talking to Donnie Deutsch about the economy and what's going on with working people, and what he says is infuriating. What I see and what I feel is there's something changed in the American psyche of what I'll call just kind of the, the work ethic, and it's not just the $300 check. Uh, I think post-pandemic, people got used to staying at home. CNBC had a thing that they called the Great Resignation that I think there's something like statistically 92% of Americans said they're either considering change or change jobs or leave their jobs. And I think that we've gotten a little soft in the pandemic. I love that James Gorman, the, the head of uh, Morgan Stanley, said to, to his workers, I'm not going to give you the option. This is a separate issue about people not having jobs. It's about people going back to work. I'm not going to give you the option of coming back to work. If you feel okay going to a New York City restaurant, you can go back to work. And I'm one of these believers of this kind of this new soft attitude of, oh, work from home, flexibility and whatnot. There's something about people going back to work that has to happen. And if I was still running a company today, I would say, guess what? You're coming back to work. So there's two problems. So there are people who don't want to work, and there's people who don't want to go back physically to work. And we've softened in the pandemic, and that's a concern to me. The irony, as he says this, while working from home. He's at home, and he's working from home. You know, I don't think anybody should have to work from home. I think you should get your ass in there. Well, get your ass in there, son. What are you doing? This reminds me of, you know, like that famous, when Jordan Peterson, his big thing is like, clean your room, take care of your own shit before you criticize the world. And then like, there's the picture of him in his room and his room was just a colossal mess. Like, come on, dude. How do you not realize what you're saying there? Now, but it gets even worse. It gets even worse. And a lot of you guys probably know this already, but Donnie Deutsch inherited a business from his daddy. The business was worth over $200 million dollars. Over $200 million, and he has the nerve to talk about work ethic. Dude, you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear anything about other people's work ethic or lack of work ethic or whatever the hell's going on in your mind. It's ridiculous. 
It's ridiculous. You're being ridiculous. So the other thing is, I don't understand, like this old school mindset, I don't get. And the funny thing is, none of these people can actually explain, make an argument for their position. So what I mean is he says, I don't like this work from home or have flexibility. Get physically back into work. Okay, but why? And he says, basically, it just doesn't feel right the way we're doing it now. Like it feels right when you're in the office. That is not an argument. People could have said that shit back in the day about indentured servitude. You know, stopping indentured servitude, that just doesn't feel right. We should bring back indentured servitude. I think that's the way to go. That's not an argument. You're just, I, I have a preference for the way it worked when it was working in a worse way. By the way, guys, the productivity is either staying the same or increasing. So if people are able to get their work done and they prefer it at home, what difference does it make? Well, the reality is guys like Donnie Deutsch like the idea of a boss being able to lord over you being able to walk around and keep their eye on you and keep you in line and, you know, make sure that in those times where you're not working, that at least you pretend to work. So, hmm, yes, I'm very serious. I'm doing well. Yeah. <laughs> that's what he wants. That's what he wants. And there's something that's so degrading and oppressive about that, you know. Um, if people are getting their work done, let them work from wherever the hell they want to work. How are we even debating this? Um, and then he says there's two problems people who don't want to work, and people who don't want to go back physically to work. There's also a third problem, which is people who are unemployed and didn't get a penny of help from the government, didn't get any unemployment because of all the, the loopholes in the system. You know how many of those there are? Nine million. Nine million. There's also the problem of people who are slipping into poverty. There's also the problem of businesses that don't want to pay a living wage, Everybody's blaming the workers, but for once, or maybe ever, but definitely in a very long time, at least workers now have the ability to say, like, I'll go work for you when you pay me a decent wage. And so the stimulus check and some of the unemployment has served as a bargaining chip, effectively, for working people to say, yeah, I'll go back to work, but you've got to fucking pay me a decent wage. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And if you don't believe me that that's the dynamic at play here, don't take my word for it. There's been a number of articles on this recently. Just to give one example, that Pittsburgh ice cream shop raised their wage from, I think it was $7.25 all the way to $15 an hour. And you know what happened? They got so many applications that they lost count. Previously, they couldn't get anybody. Then they upped it to $15 an hour. They're off to the races. They're off to the races. And, you know, they were able to hire whoever they wanted. And they had so many applications, they lost count. So, listen... Raise wages. Raise wages to get people back to work. And if you prefer them to physically be at work instead of at home, that's another, okay, fine, pay them more, and then there will be some people who are willing to do that. This idea, blame the worker, blame the worker, blame the regular people. This is the smug kind of shit you get from these clowns. These guys are all multimillionaires, you know, and, and their job consists of sitting in a studio and telling you their opinions sitting in a, a, a beautifully air-conditioned studio and saying, I think this, this is what I think, and what I think is so important and much more important than what anybody out there thinks. <laughs> Be thankful for that shit, man. I'm thankful for the fact that you guys like this show enough to make it so that I can cover news and give my opinions, and you support it. He has zero acknowledgement of that, no recognition of that. It's all like he's the pontificator-in-chief. I think you should get back to work. And I think you should have to physically be at work so you can be more miserable. 
and I think Americans are soft these days and lazy these days. What's soft is getting, inheriting a $200 million or more than that company from your father and then working in TV for this long and pretending like what, you're a salt of the earth guy in a coal mine? Shut the fuck up. You're not even like, not even doing other hard work that's not physical, like an accountant or some shit. It's just, it's just pure disrespect, man. It really is. And as I said, if there are a small number of people out there, and there are, 1%, 2% of the population, whatever it is, that has enough um, money now from the stimulus check and from some unemployment support where they have a cushion where they can now reevaluate their life and look for a job that they actually prefer. And so they have three months off, four months off, or whatever it is. I say, good on you. That's wonderful. But these guys look at that and they think, lazy useless, shut up and work for less money than you need and get your ass back to the office. That's what they see. That's what they see. God, they're so elitist. I can't stand it. But there you go. I mean, these guys have about as much um, self-perception as Donald Trump does. And, you know, he breaks the world record on that front, but these guys are right there with him. Okay, next. The other day, I was told that uh, there was somebody in mainstream media who wanted to chat with me about new media and independent media. And um, I I didn't want to do it, so I didn't do it. And usually, I mean, half of it is that I'm introverted, and so I like to talk to all that many people. Part of it's also that I'm a little lazy, and so I didn't really want to make time in my day for that um, because I'm a very schedule-oriented kind of guy, very structured in my day, uh, very organized. Um, But there was another reason why I didn't want to do it is because I know the way these things work. And usually what happens is you talk to these people for an extended period of time, and then they just take – they pluck like two or three quotes out from what you said, and they use that to fit their narrative. Well, turns out it was exactly right. So the outlet I'm talking about is Axios, and they um, did an article, and the article is titled, Corporate Media Backlash Fuels Upstarts. Corporate Media Backlash Fuels Upstarts. So, you know, you hear that, and so far so good. That's a relatively benign Headline, right? I mean, that's how I feel about it. It seems like it's a relatively benign headline. However, let me give you some of this article, and then you'll see one of the reasons why I was very hesitant to get involved. So it starts like this. New media personalities have gained enormous traction over the past year by catering to individuals who feel disillusioned by the mainstream press. By the way, only 29% of the American people trust the media. So people who feel disillusioned by the mainstream press, it's a gargantuan majority of the population. They say, a convergence of trends over the past year has made it easier for writers to launch new entities that can rival mainstream outlets, and it's given these creators the freedom to criticize big media institutions. Okay, still, so far, so good. They sort of link the rise in new media to the pandemic a little bit, which I don't think is true, but whatever, nothing really hinges on that point. 
Then they bring up the point I just made. Trust in mainstream media is at a record low, and the remote nature of the pandemic, sped up by digital innovation, is making it much easier for creators to self-publish and distribute their work online. That's the pandemic point. Quote, people are hungry for information, just not the information that the corporate media is trained to give people. Sagar and Jetty, co-host of the new YouTube show Breaking Points, tell Axios. Okay, so... Then they go on to talk more about breaking points, and they bring up other independent new media outlets, some of them, you know, outlets where it's just writers, some where it's people who do a show and they actually talk. Um, who do they reference in there? They reference, like, Matt Taibbi's one example, and I, I forget some of the others that they bring up. Um, but then they go on, and at the end of the article, here's what you get. Of the top 50 political podcasts on Apple Podcasts today, about 60% come from personalities that don't work at mainstream news companies. Hmm. Using new platforms to attack media companies may lead to, to continued polarization of audiences and the nation, Helen Lewis notes in The Atlantic. Most troubling, the trend could also lead to an increase in the perception that misinformation runs rampant and that audiences shouldn't trust anything they see in the news. So do you understand what they're saying here? They're saying, hey, these new media platforms attack old media, and that's, gonna, that's a problem because then it leads to continued polarization of the nation. Wait a second. Mainstream media leads to polarization of the nation. Have you seen Fox News? Have you seen MSNBC? Have you seen CNN? It's not new media that's increasing polarization. If anything, we're just pointing out the way that old media works and pointing out that they are polarizing people. But see, they're trying to drop hints like, I don't know, is this such a good idea? And then the next line really says it all. The trend could also lead to an increase in the perception that misinformation runs rampant and that audiences shouldn't trust anything they see in the news. An increase in the perception that misinformation runs rampant. So in other words, new media is saying, hey, there's a lot of misinformation in old media, and so you shouldn't really trust it. The reason why we can say that and the reason why it lands is because it is absolutely, positively, 100%, without a doubt, accurate. Accurate. Yeah, we point out misinformation all the time in old media. That's half of our job. But they're trying to say that, like, oh, no, we're just, increasing the perception of misinformation in old media. So in other words, they're blaming us, new media, for pointing out the facts instead of blaming the old media companies for actually getting stuff wrong and spreading misinformation. See, this is why, this is one of the reasons why they want to talk to them. If necessity, this is the last line, if necessity is the mother of invention, then corporate backlash is the mother of new media upstarts. See, they're making it sound like it's just, it's just a strategy on our part. You know, like, oh, they found an angle, and the angle is to beat up on the old institutions. But they're going to, the new media people are going to increase polarization, and they're going to increase the perception that old media is spreading misinformation. It's not a perception. You guys are polarizing, and you guys are spreading misinformation. Now, listen, I do say, generally speaking, Print outlets are an exception because they're so much better than the TV outlets. I believe that to my core. You know, a lot of the information that we get for this show comes from the print outlets. 
because they do a half-decent job. But when it comes to CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, Fox Business, CNBC, the nightly news on the various um, you know, state affiliates, they do a terrible job. And it's amazing that people can't have that minimum level of objectivity and admit this. So every major war that we've gone to in the past few decades, the media was cheerleading it. That's not an opinion, that's a fact. And by the way, everybody who was wrong on those wars got promoted. Everybody who was against them got fired. Phil Donahue got fired. Jesse Ventura got fired. Bill Crystal is now a major pundit on all these various news outlets. I don't know if he has a contract with CNN or MSNBC. David Frum, same. a lot of these people failed up. They failed up. So don't tell me about uh, the perception of misinformation. It is misinformation. How many stories did they get wrong on Russiagate? How many stories? So many were just totally fabricated. Remember the one where they were like Julian Assange met with Paul Manafort? Total bullshit. And so many outlets covered it. And then if any of them happened to make a, a correction, it would be later on and sort of buried. There are so many examples of this. Even the way they covered Trump was totally non-substantive. It was incredibly political and polarized, but they would make a scandal out of every like tweet, and they would ignore all of the real policy failures. How many times did you guys hear the story of Donald Trump taking a million dollars from the predatory payday loan industry and then dropping all the lawsuits against them and dropping all the regulations against them? How many times did you hear that story? Not much, right? How many times did you hear the story of him gutting the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a bureau that returned billions of dollars to defrauded Americans from big financial institutions. Didn't hear much about that, did you? But you did hear about the time that he said in his speech, the TPP is going to rape us, and they flipped out over the word rape. Or he said, you know, called somebody a horse face or some shit, and they melted down for three days over that. So in other words, they're making it seem like new media has an angle. This, This is taking pot shots at new media and taking pot shots at breaking points. Fact of the matter is, listen, yes, we're all, I'm not just a straight news person. I don't pretend to be just a straight news person. I give you guys some facts and I give you my opinion on it. But I'm open and I'm honest and I'm upfront with that. And I do my job to the best of my ability. And yes, I have an ideological lens, but I tell you what that ideological lens is. I tell you I'm basically either, you know, a social democrat or a libertarian socialist. I tell you these things. So I give you my bias upfront. Mainstream media does not tell you their bias up front. They pretend like they're just calling balls and strikes. They pretend like they're objective. They pretend like they're neutral, but they all have opinions. And by the way, their opinions are not really, are not really uh, thoughtful. So it's not that we found an angle and we are trying to just increase the perception that misinformation runs rampant. We're pointing out misinformation runs rampant. It absolutely runs rampant. For sure. And the idea that it's old media doesn't increase political polarization. Arguably, nothing has polarized Americans more than old media. How many people do you know in your life who are either Fox News oatmeal brains or MSNBC oatmeal brains? There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them, aren't there? I'm telling you. Of course they had to add the pot shots, man. 
And then, you know, how many times have we shown you segments, some NBC News segment was fear-mongering about the increase of extremism as a result of, you know, politics on YouTube. And the segment just outright calls for censorship and deplatforming and banning, regulation of it. You know, Brian Stelter just did a segment the other day effectively calling for the deplatforming or censoring of uh, right-wing outlets and basically outlets he doesn't agree with. They think they're so high and mighty. Let me explain something to you guys. Just because old media has gigantic budgets and everybody looks all prim and proper on air doesn't mean that they're good at their job. In fact, they're terrible at their job. And this is why people have started searching out new stuff. And that's not to say that all new stuff is good. Of course not. But it's different, and there are a lot of good outlets in independent and new media. So anyway, there you have it. Uh, I will say that at least most of the article seems to be at least benign. Most of the article is at least benign, but then at the end you get the normal stuff from corporate media. But you know what? We should all expect it, and the reason we should expect it is effectively we're, we're competition to these old media outlets. Even though I, I'm very upfront about this, I'm not just a straight news person. I, I give facts and opinions, news and opinions. Um, but even given that fact, I do think that these guys feel like we're competition, especially an outlet like Breaking Point. Because, you know, Sagar and Sagar was like in the White House press room at one point, And then Crystal was originally with MSNBC. And so and then they were at the Hill. So they always had a, one foot in that official world. And so they're the first outlet that now is fully independent, truly independent. But they also have a little bit of that mainstream credibility and they're popular. And so I do think that there is, people are a little bit threatened by that, you know. Um, and, but again, most of this is benign. I just don't like those pot shots at the end. I really don't like it. Because it is true that traditional media really feeds political polarization, absolutely feeds political polarization. And it is true that there's a lot of misinformation in old media. And therein lies the problem with all this censorship and deplatforming stuff, too, is that you know the way it'll work. They'll just, and they already do this. The YouTube algorithm props up authoritative sources. That's all those mainstream media outlets, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, so on and so forth. And they take the borderline content, that's me, and they push it down in the algorithm. So even if we get something exactly right and they get something exactly wrong, it makes no difference. Why? Because they have the billions of dollars and the professional look and I'm just a guy in my own studio who makes fart noises with his mouth and jokes around. So on optics alone, they say, this is legitimate, this is illegitimate. And obviously, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's just. I don't think that makes any sense. And I think in a fair fight, me versus CNN, in terms of uh, viewership, I think we would win easy. CNN used to get horrendous. They'd get like 800 views on a video before YouTube started pumping them out with algorithms. You know, so in an actual free marketplace where everything's fair and square, they don't do too well. But when they're propped up, yes, they could dust all of us. So, God damn it, man. Of course, of course, they're going to take some pot shots. But, you know, the good news is, at least when it comes to breaking points, they're doing phenomenally well. And I'm sure that'll continue. Okay.
Next. So there, uh, there's this right-wing site. I have it written down here somewhere. Hold on. Oh, I think it's called the Post Millennial. Yes, it's called the Post Millennial. And they uh, made total asses of themselves while they were trying to do some fake outrage culture war stuff. So let me show you the headline here on Mediaite discussing this. Right-wing site quietly issues humiliating correction to story on women's soccer anthem action. What happened was members of the U.S. women's soccer team were accused of disrespecting the flag, disrespecting the country, because apparently they turned their back on a 98-year-old World War II veteran. The guy's name is Pete Dupree. They turned their back on him while he was playing the national anthem with his harmonica. So this was at the match to play, oh, excuse me, who were they playing? Was it Mexico? Doesn't, doesn't say here, but I think it was Mexico, but I could be wrong on that front. I apologize if I am. Um, so, you know, video went around and showed a bunch of the teammates facing one direction and then some facing the other direction. And the way this was perceived in right-wing media was they are protesting. They're, you know, effectively doing the same as taking a knee, right? The Kaepernick thing. Um, turning their back on a 98-year-old World War II veteran, disrespecting your country, disrespecting the World War II veteran, how dare you? Um, so they had a headline, disgraceful U.S. women's soccer team members turn their backs on 98-year-old World War II vet playing the national anthem. Now, there's one little problem. The problem is that's not what they were doing. The problem is the women who turned around turned around to face the flag. So the issue was nobody knew exactly what was the correct thing to do, the proper thing to do, the, um, the thing that was expected of them. A lot of the women decided, I'm going to face this lovely 98-year-old man who's playing the harmonica. Like, I kind of want to see this, and I think that's more respectful. And other women thought, well, when you're hearing the national anthem, you're supposed to, you know, look at the flag. And so some turned around and some faced straight. But... What they've all made crystal clear is that, listen, we wanted, we were trying to do what we thought was most respectful. That's clear. So what happened? After the record was corrected, because the soccer team released a statement, and they were all like, we were looking at the flag, and some of us were looking at the guy playing the, the harmonica, but none of us were, in this instance, protesting anything. You know what happened? The post-millennial changed the headline. Attacking, it, the, the headline did attack the two people who turned around to face the flag. Then they changed it to attacking the women who didn't turn around to face the flag. These people are unbelievable. They need a hit of that fake culture war outrage. They needed a hit of the fake culture war outrage. So what did they do? They just flipped the scandal and tried to make it out like it's still a scandal, even though everybody was incredibly clear. Hey, some of us were facing the guy playing the harmonica because we respected him and we wanted to see it, and some of us felt like the appropriate thing to do was to face the flag. They made it seem like it was nefarious. At first, oh, it's nefarious that they turned around to face the flag, and then it was, oh, 
It's nefarious because some people didn't turn around to face the flag. So there is no winning. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. You literally could have written that article then, no matter what they did. If all of them turned around to face the flag, they could have went after them for not facing the guy playing the harmonica. If all of them faced the guy playing the harmonica, they could have written it saying, hey, you got your backs to the flag. They're just looking to be outraged at some shit. They're just looking to be outraged at some shit. And guys, this is what happens with the, the culture war melts people's brains, man. It really does. It gets people obsessed with issues that divert your attention from the real issues that matter to all of us. You want to know how we make this country a better place? We stop bombing people overseas and we use that money to rebuild our infrastructure here at home. We build out unions so working people have a chance at making it. We raise the minimum wage. We give everybody health care because we have millions who don't have health insurance now. This is how you make the country better. This is how you make the country better, by doing good things. But instead of people focusing on that, they're just looking for the next thing to get outraged over. And by the way, how quickly do these people flip from, you know, we believe in free speech, we believe in free expression, we believe in the First Amendment, to, oh my God, you triggered me, and I'm outraged, and I'm offended, and so, so you should be punished for doing what you did. Even if, even if people were protesting, whether the, it was the flag or the, the lovely guy playing the harmonica, even if somebody did protest, you can ask them, hey, what, what's your purpose? What's your reason? And then they'll tell you, and that's called free expression. So in other words, I wouldn't even be outraged if they were protesting. Because, again, this is culture war nonsense that melts your brain. What Colin Kaepernick did is totally free expression, and the right wanted to crack down on him and punish him and cancel him. Make sure he loses his job as a result of it. It'd be the same thing here. So it's when, when their side uses free speech or free expression and does something offensive, they're like, yes, free speech is awesome. When the left does something offensive, they're like, oh, my God, punishment, dole out some punishment. They have no consistent standards or principles, man. They don't. It's so obnoxious and it's so annoying and it's so obvious you're playing for teams. Stop playing for a team. For the love of God, have a standard. Have a principle. It's so annoying. It's just so crazy that they were corrected on what went on here, and then they still went along to do, went, uh, got around to doing fake outrage again. I can't talk today. They still did fake outrage. It's amazing. That's amazing to me. How is that even possible? You were corrected, and then you just flipped the narrative, but stay outraged. And listen, I have to say it because this is an example where I think it's pretty clear. They're just being dishonest at this point. This is just, we want to have our fake outrage injected directly into our veins, and we don't care how we get it. We'll make it up if we have to. So you're just being dishonest. You're, you're choosing the feeling of the fake outrage over the facts of the situation. So you're hacks. That's what you are. This is what happens, guys. Culture war is a slippery slope. You start going down it, and eventually you're nothing but a tribal partisan loser. And this is just such a great example of that dynamic in action. Okay. So Fox Business Network is uh, really happy over the left turning on Bernie Sanders. 
They're going to try to exploit this rift. They're going to be like tackling hyenas here, doing divide and conquer of the left further. So let's watch their segment. We'll talk about what they get right, and then we'll also criticize them for what they're doing. Calling it Bernie's burnout, progressives still aiming for massive spending despite the strong jobs numbers, but many are now distancing themselves from Senator Sanders, saying he is not pushing President Biden far enough to the left. Really? Well, joining me now, former senior White House advisor and America First legal founder, Stephen Miller. Stephen, so glad to have you with us today. I want to talk a little bit about the reaction to Senator Sanders. This is interesting to me. We're just several months into the administration's tenure, and we're already hearing Senator Sanders isn't doing his job. Your reaction to that? Yes, it's, it's quite astonishing. They should be very grateful progressives on the left to Senator Sanders. Immensely grateful because his agenda has been adopted really without alteration by President Biden. We have Joe Biden in the Oval Office, but we have Bernie Sanders' policies being put into effect. So the only thing I can think, and this, and this sounds mean, but it's not, it's not me saying it, the only thing I can think is that, is that progressives just have soured on Sanders. In other words, while I might think, or others might think, he does a good job explaining communist policies, albeit I think communist policies would be the ruination of our country and every other country, but he does a good job putting a spin on them to make them sound less insane than they actually are. Apparently, some progressives think he's no longer their most effective spokesperson, which, frankly, I'm surprised to hear. Stephen, is this the point in the progressive movement where the movement starts to kind of sabotage itself from the inside out. It's the ideological purity contest that nobody wins because nobody's left standing. That seems to be where things are already going at this point. Well, they're obviously falling all over themselves to take out the furthest left ideological territory that they possibly can. All right, so there's a bunch of stuff to say here. Some of it is true, but most of it is not. So is it accurate that the left... Some aspects of the left, some factions of the left are turning on Bernie. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, but the reason that they're giving is really not adequate. So as far as I could tell, the people who are upset with Bernie, um, including myself, we are mad that he isn't pushing Biden hard enough and he's not getting tangible wins that we wanted. That's what it all comes down to. So when you look at the left agenda, what does the left care about? The left cares about a $15 minimum wage and Medicare for all and, um, you know, Green New Deal, universal basic income. There's a lot of stuff that the left cares about. I'd say ending the wars, too. Now, Biden gets half credit on that front because he's drawing down. But, uh, yeah, we're going to see how many many, uh, U.S. operatives remain in Afghanistan, and I think it will probably be about 1,000. So, again, only half credit if I was... We want you to get out. We want you to get out for real. Um, but, yeah, the idea that Bernie's agenda is being adopted without alteration by Joe Biden is simply factually wrong and incredibly stupid. Because if that was the case, he would have fought for Medicare for all. He would have fought for $15 minimum wage. He didn't fight for those things at all, not even a little bit. Even now, with the infrastructure negotiation, what's he doing? Two separate bills, one a terrible 
uh, bipartisan regular order bill and one, uh, hopefully, a half-decent um, partisan reconciliation bill. That's not what Bernie Sanders would do as president. That's not what he'd do at all. Even in the previous uh, COVID relief bills, are there some good parts of it? Absolutely. But he said $2,000 checks, and we got $1,400 checks. I don't buy the 1400 plus 600 argument. I don't think that's I – I think $2,000 checks means $2,000 checks regardless of what Trump did before that. So there weren't recurring checks. Credit for the expansion of the child tax credit. The piece of legislation was okay. But don't lie to me and say this is Bernie's agenda without alteration. That's just factually wrong. That's just factually wrong. And so the things that Biden did that I'll give credit for is the executive orders that when he first got in office that first week, he did a bunch of executive orders just reversing Trump's executive orders. Those are all great. I give him credit for all those. Half credit on the COVID relief bill because parts of it were good. But there were also parts of it that were bad. And he didn't really fight for $15 minimum wage. And, I, you know, Bernie has the power to sort of get together with the squad, um, have a voting block in the House, and they can assert more pressure on Biden if they say, we'll just block the whole agenda if you don't do X, Y, or Z. Whether it's, they could do it, they could force him to do stuff through executive order. They could say, we're going to block everything unless you uh, decriminalize marijuana in the entire country or legalize marijuana in the entire country just by taking it off the scheduled substances list. They could block everything and say, you have to do that. They could block everything and say, you have to eliminate all student loan debt or eliminate $30,000 or $50,000 of it. They could do that, but they haven't done that. So I think the frustration from the left is that you don't really see um, Bernie using the proper approach to get Biden to do the correct things, and you don't see left Congress people using the right approach to get Biden to to do the right things. And so when when Democrats have control of the White House, the Senate, and the House, and we're not really getting our, any of our main policies implemented, that's going to lead to frustration. And what you, have, you have to get people incremental wins here and there in order for the movement to feel satiated, and they haven't done that. So that's why uh, factions of the left are turning on Bernie. And, I mean, they're not wrong. I think they're correct in their frustration, and I'm one of those people who's, who's frustrated about it. Uh, so the idea that, oh, we've just soured on Bernie as a spokesperson, it's not true. It's not true. I think he's a great spokesperson. I just think he's not taking the correct tangible approach here to get the wins that we need. And by the way, LOL at uh, Bernie being a communist. He explains his communist policies well in a way that doesn't sound communist. If you think Bernie's a communist, you don't know anything about political labels at all. You don't know anything about political labels at all, not even a little bit, not even the tiniest bit. He's he's a mild social democrat. He says he's a democratic socialist. He's not even a democratic socialist. Based off what he explains, he's a social democrat. You know, an FDR New Deal style democrat. That's what he is. Obviously, Bernie's a lot better on social issues than FDR was, but that's obvious. Um, And yeah, the final thing is, is the only point that they're right about is, it is true that the progressive movement is is sabotaging itself now. There's no doubt about it. Um, Where you put the blame for that is a different question. And again, I would sort of put the blame on the leaders or the lack of leaders in, in the progressive movement because, again, you needed to have very tangible wins that you could show the progressive base in order for them to be like, yes, we're on the right path, keep going. And there haven't been those. And so since those don't exist, that's why I think the left is, is turning on itself. So I really do put the blame with the leaders. I put the blame with the left Congress people. I put the blame with Bernie. I do. Um, but that's still no excuse for it. In other words, we should be on the left, we should be smart enough to know 
here's where the shortcomings are, here's where we're failing, we should be smart enough to, to know that while also not self-sabotaging and not turning it into all-out war and not doing counterproductive things. Because any sort of winning coalition, I mean, this is, these are the facts, guys. Any sort of winning coalition is going to include everybody who's even nominally on the left. Any sort of winning coalition is going to have to keep leftist Congress people, Democratic Socialists, Social Democrats, um, even liberal Democrats, even like center-left Democrats are going to have to be part of a coalition if you really want to win on these policies. And then even the occasional like libertarian-leaning Republican on certain issues, like Rand Paul on war, for example, um, or Justin Amash on whatever, he's an independent now, but Justin Amash on, on issues involving like the NSA and whatnot. The problem is we have to be honest enough to call out the mistakes, but also level-headed enough to not sink the entire ship and ruin the whole chance of ever getting anything done in the process. So it's, it's hard because you have to simultaneously call out the mistakes, which involves calling people out, but also still stick together and come together in a unifying way where we agree on the issues that matter. And that's a difficult balancing act for people because people are very tribal. People are very tribal. People sometimes look at the world in a very black and white way. You're either with me or you're against me. And um, that is a guaranteed mixture or recipe for failing at politics from now until the end of time. And so I do think they're right that the progressive movement is sabotaging itself. And by the way, that's why they're covering it. They're covering it because they want to exploit that rift. You know, they want to they wanna do divide and conquer. And by pointing it out that they're aiding and abetting divide and conquer. So that's the, it, it's a paradox and it's a conundrum. And I'm not saying I have all the answers. But what I am saying is, if you ever want to win on anything, policy-wise, and actually get political victories, we need to, number one, be able to call out the mistakes in our leaders and adjust course properly. But number two, in the process of doing that, make sure we don't cancel everybody involved, therefore undermining our chance of ever getting anything done because we burned a thousand bridges. You see what I'm saying? And that's, that's a tough balancing act. Calling out leaders for being wrong and trying to get them to adjust course strategically while also making clear, just because I think you're wrong on this doesn't mean we're not going to work together where we can and how we can in order to win in the long run. And this is why politics is so hard. You know, I'm a big believer in effective, efficient leadership. You know, I, of course I support democracy and egalitarianism wherever humanly possible, but leaders do need movements, or excuse me, movements do need leaders, excuse me, I flipped it. Movements do need leaders to remind everybody what the vision is, what the mission is, how we get from point A to point B. And the thing I'll say right now is, it hurts me to say it, but it's true, there's not a single leader among them, man. There's not a single leader among them in Washington, D.C. There really isn't. And because there's a power vacuum right now, it is being filled with endless sniping and you know, everybody going right for everybody else's jugular. And um, nothing's ever going to get accomplished that way, ever, 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 ever. Again, I don't have all the answers, but we have to find a way to call out our leaders for being wrong on strategy and try to get them to correct the course and while also making sure in the process of doing that, we don't isolate ourselves and make everybody hate us 
leaving us even worse off and further away from our victories than we were before. So that's the conundrum. I guess we're all going to try to go ahead and work on that. Let me take a break. When we come back, Mitch McConnell's brain shit the bed mid-speech. Um, we're all going to get a kick out of that one. Stay right there, y'all.
Alright, we are back, bitch. We are back in this motherfucker. Motherfucker. Alright, let's go. Mitch McConnell's brain shits the bed. Oh, I need an... Actually, there's another video I need for this. Um, let me try to pull that up. I think it's... Yeah, hold on. Play this one for you, too. Okay. As Mitch McConnell gets older and older, um, he starts caring less and less. I mean, he's just sort of letting it all hang out now. He has been a political wrecking ball for years, just obstructing nonstop whenever the Democrats want to do anything, pushing through his disgusting, decrepit, rotten, corrupt agenda at every turn. And um, it used to be the case that, you know, you're a politician, you have to pretend like you're doing good things, even if you're doing terrible things. Well, now, he basically just stopped pretending. Like, he's so used to being corrupt and terrible and getting away with it, no matter what he does, that now he's basically out there like, I'm a bad person and I do bad things. I mean, that's hardly a stretch. This is barely hyperbole. So um, you're going to see here, he's at some event, and his brain clearly shits the bed in real time. Our friends on the other side act like corporations are not people. Well, what about all the people that work there? And all the people who have stock and their retirement accounts. The people that work at the corporations are people. The shareholders are people. But the legal entity itself, the corporation, is not a person. It's not a person. He thought that was such like a got ya. He thought that was a logic chokehold. The guy got him. Oh, yeah, if corporations aren't people, then what about the people who work at the corporations? Nailed it. God, that was so stupid. Oh. <laughs> yes, Mitch, the people who work at the corporations are people. The shareholders are people. The corporate entities on their own, the legal fictions that are corporations, they're not people. They're not people at all. This is the way he thinks. Understand something. This guy has been a loyal servant to corporate America his entire career. This is what he's really about. And by the way, think about it. If you give corporations the same legal rights as people, and these guys do, and our country largely does, if you do that, who's going to have more power? The corporation or the actual individual person? Who's going to have more power? The corporation. Because they're worth a hell of a lot more money and they can exert political influence through campaign contributions, which are bribes. Soon as you make corporations equal to people, the people no longer matter at all. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence to that effect. There was that Princeton study from years ago, which found that basically the top 1% of corporations their will is always reflected in the policies that the politicians push for and implement, and the will of you know, the bottom 80% or 90%, what we want, what we prefer, uh, according to the opinion polls, almost never gets put into law, very rarely. 
It's all because of this kind of thinking. This is, just so everybody understands, this is corporatism to a T. That's what this is. This is sheer corporatism. Um, so even the old ideological labels of like conservative and the party Republican, ultimately this is just corporatism, and he wants to live in a corporatocracy. He wants the billionaires, the 1% and the corporations to run everything. And guess what? Lucky him, they kind of do. Um, now, by the way, so I don't have this video queued up for you right now. I'm going to play it, though, anyway, because I don't know if you might be able to hear it through the microphone. If you can't hear it, it's only 30 seconds. If you can't hear it, I'll, uh, I'll just tell you what he says. But So from the exact same speech here that Mitch McConnell is giving, he says this. He says, so you're going to get a lot more money. Well, it passed on a straight party line vote. <clears throat> it passed on a straight party line vote. You're getting more money. Not a single member of my party voted for it. Not a single member of my party voted for it. You're going to get more money. But nobody in my party voted for you getting more money. So you're going to get a lot more money. I didn't vote for it. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. You're going to get a lot more money. I didn't vote for it, but uh, you're going to get a lot more money. Nobody in my party voted for it. Mitch, you're saying the quiet part out loud. Holy shit. Holy shit. Mitch McConnell is saying the quiet part loud. Oh, my God, man. By the way, you want to know why he says this stuff? Because... He's been doing this stuff for decades, and he never got caught, and he never got, he wins almost every political fight he's in. So this is why, now he's just letting his nuts hang. Homeboy's nuts are dragging on the floor now. He's like, yeah, what, this is what I do. What are you talking, I say what I want, I do what I want, I tell everybody how corrupt I am, I tell everybody how much I love corporations, I tell them I'm against them getting money, and I'm still going to win these fights. Uh, by the way, how pathetic is it the Democrats can't beat this guy? The guy who's like, corporations aren't people, then why are there people working for the corporations? The people there are people. Why aren't the corporations people? The guy who's like, you're going to get a lot more money, and I definitely didn't vote for it. I'm against that. You can't beat this guy. You can't beat this guy. I'm sorry, but this gives a lot of evidence to the theory that Democrats are the paid losers. You know, like the whole job of the Democrats is to be the Washington generals against the Harlem Globetrotters, you know? Like the whole job is like to fake fight and then ultimately give the Republicans what they want. To be fair, usually the way it works is under the Republican administrations, it's the, what's the I think it's called the ratchet effect, ratchet effect, excuse me. So the Republicans make things worse and then the Democrats come in and just stop them from getting worse, but they don't move it back in the correct direction. And the Republicans come in and make it worse again. And the Democrats come in and just stop it getting worse for a little bit. But then the Republicans come in and make it worse again. And so you're never actually moving in the right direction. You're moving further and further and further and further and further right. And actually, I think the ratchet effect is a little bit off because usually the Democrats sort of overall in totality, when you take social issues and economic issues, I think on some social issues, they do a good job and move it in the right direction. But then on economic issues, they usually move it a little more in the wrong direction. So maybe it is a correct analysis. But I would say Democrats make continue to make things like slightly worse, you know, Republicans come in and make them really worse than Democrats come in and make them slightly worse. You know what I mean? So 
uh, this is stunning. You can't beat this guy. You can't beat this guy. And the reason they can't beat this guy is because he, use every parliament, he uses every parliamentary maneuver and procedure and roadblock that he possibly can. So he wins all the political battles. Um, and the Democrats don't make any counterarguments to this that are effective. They don't know how to use the parliamentary procedures. And by the way, a lot of it is because they don't really want to, because they half agree with the Republicans. So people say all the time, like, oh, what if we had a left-wing Trump? Yeah, what if we had a left-wing Trump is one thing, but what we really need is a left-wing Mitch McConnell. Just the polar opposite of Mitch McConnell on policy, but the exact same movements when it comes to parliamentary procedure and obstruction of the opposition party and jamming through your own agenda. That's really what we need. That's really what we need. I'm astounded by these videos. (laughs) You're going to make a lot more money. And I voted against it. I don't want you to have more money. I want you to be poor. That's what I want. I want you to go. I want you to starve in the street. He wins his next election by 80 points. <laughs> Kentucky, what are you doing, Kentucky? What are you doing? I think he's Kentucky, right? Yeah, I think he's Kentucky. Is he not Kentucky? I know Rand Paul. Yeah, I think it's Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell. Yeah, what are you guys doing, bro? What are you doing? This guy despises you. He, just, he is the ultimate representative of the 1% and the billionaires and the corporations. How do you not see it? This guy's not fighting for regular working people. You're going to get more money, and I'm against that. I want you to have less money. Give it all the corporations because they're people. But I like, I like corporations, but I don't like actual people. I think corporations are more like people than people are like people. Mitch, astonishing. This is truly astonishing. All right, next. Here we go. So this stumbled across my feed the other day, and I was absolutely floored and fascinated by it. So Irami here is uh, also known on YouTube as the Funky Academic. And he's, you know, he's done uh, many appearances on Crystal and Sagar's show. He's a very interesting character, very thoughtful character. Um, he says, just got a seven-day Facebook ban for quoting the Declaration of Independence. And you can see there it says, this is because you previously posted something that didn't follow our community standards. This post goes against our standards on hate speech so no one else can see it. So you can see what it said. This is supposed to be hate speech, they say. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. And then he says, remember, those domestic insurrections were slave revolts. It looks like in context it's slave revolts and like Native Americans fighting back. But he quoted the Declaration of Independence and they said, this is hate speech. We need to pull it down. So in other words, you can't openly and honestly discuss the history of the United States of America without getting banned. This is political correctness run amok. This is cancel culture run amok. And by the way, hate to say I told you so, but this is what we warned you about. We warned you that once you open the door to censorship and deplatforming and policing speech, it's, always, it's the slipperiest, slippery slope imaginable. The second you open the door, you're already at the bottom of the slope. Because then everybody's going to point the finger at everybody else, and the standards are going to be applied without context, without perspective, 
You know, you, you ban some far-right people who are crazy, and then they turn around and say, you got to ban Antifa. And Twitter did ban a lot of big Antifa accounts when that happened. This is Facebook, of course, but look, this is what happens. You honestly directly quote the founding fathers, and they're like, that's clearly hate speech, and they pull it down. So even in the context of discussing history, you can't do it? Well, then you have to sanitize everything, everything. This is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. And by the way, you know, I know the right likes to make this their, their main thing. They flip out whenever some right winger is banned for saying something. Where are you now? I thought you guys were against cancel culture. I thought you guys were against censorship. This is clear cancel culture and censorship and violates all notions of freedom of speech. And I don't hear anybody, anybody talking about it. Why? Because he's quoting a politically incorrect part of the Declaration of Independence that kind of shows a lot of our founders were dyed-in-the-wool bigots, you know? And that's one of those things where if you say it in right-wing circles, that's cancelable. They get super triggered by some facts about our history. Now, by the way, I'm not, you know, I actually think this cuts in both directions in the sense that it is true that the 1619 Project had a bunch of factual inaccuracies in it, and uh, so the right, like, sort of pounced on those factual inaccuracies. So the idea is oftentimes on the left, things are, are portrayed maybe even overly negative about our past. Um, and, and they don't want to talk about any of the real positives of the United States of America. But on the right, they want to be opposite and only talk about the positive shit. And so there, it's very difficult to find a very open, honest, objective telling of the history of this country. Because, you know, there's a lot of good and a lot of bad. Obviously, talk about the Native American genocide and slavery and, and segregation and Jim Crow and nuking Japanese civilians, like all these things are terrible. Iraq war, list goes on and on. When we rose to become the next imperialist nation, like a lot of these things are, are terrible. But then also you have to balance it with the good stuff. You have to balance it with conversation about the First Amendment and freedom of speech and case law on that front in the United States of America. You have to balance it with the civil rights movement and our heroes uh, during that era. You have to balance it with the war on poverty and the New Deal, you know, um, and oftentimes you get a very biased picture no matter where you go. But what I'm seeing here is a scandal that now, this is what happens. Now we have private corporations who can police the entire political discourse of our nation. Because I got news for you, it happens all online now. You know, like this is the new public square. It is Facebook. It is Twitter. It is all these various large social media outlets. That's where the public discourse is happening now. That's where it's happening. So... If that's going to be the public square, then we need to expand the First Amendment, treat it as a public utility, and regulate these outlets like public utilities. And the only time you could really get banned or deplatformed or anything needs to be for direct threats of violence or doxing or things of that nature. So, yeah, there you have it. Now, oh, by the way, just, I actually just got this message literally right before I came on air. Apparently, so he appealed once. I think they slapped it down. Then he appealed again, and they finally flipped it and said, okay, you're fine. And uh, I, I think maybe one of the reasons why they flipped it is because we were all tweeting about it, and it kind of blew up a little bit. And so, you know, I tweeted about it. Crystal Ball tweeted about it. It took off a little bit. And uh, so it was, it was reversed after the pressure. But this is what I'm talking about. This is classic big social media outlet. They do something fucked up. Somebody appeals. If they have no power, they're like, fuck off. We're right about it. But then if they can get the thing to take off and show how absurd it is, then they're like, oh, can we say that? No, we're going to reverse the thing. This is exactly what happened with Right Wing Watch. Right Wing Watch was banned, 
they appealed. Um, they've been on YouTube, and then they appealed. YouTube said, no, we made the right decision. And then it blew up, and all these different media outlets reported on it. And then they were like, it was a mistake. We're going we're gonna to unban it right now. Don't worry about it. We're going to unban it right now. If you think this system is defensible, you're dead wrong. Okay, here we go. Let's keep going. You guys are going to love this. So I think my biggest soft spot is for sick kids. Um, like any kid dealing with some sort of disability or handicap of any sort, any sort of illness that some kid is going through. Uh, I mean, it is like instant waterworks, man. Like I tear up immediately when I'm, I see a sick kid. Um, so this story really, really struck a chord with me. I want to show you this. This is in the mirror and they say baby Riley's 1.8 million pound life-saving drug on NHS for devastating spinal condition. 1.8 million pounds, by the way, is... Um, I believe that's over $2 million. So the cost of the medicine and the treatment is over $2 million. So let me give you some more specifics on this. Um, the parents of Riley, by the way, Riley's three months old, the parents of Riley were told that he had a severe form of spinal muscular atrophy, and it causes progressive muscle weakness and loss of movement and difficulty breathing. So they, they noticed something was wrong, and they were able to diagnose Riley. They were told he had about two years to live based on his condition. The mom said, quote, when we started to suspect he may have SMA, I began researching the condition and came across Zolgensma, 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 uh, which at the time had only been announced as approved by the NHS, but we didn't yet know where it would be available or if Riley would be able to have it. So only the NHS had approved this. So what that tells me is other countries had not approved this treatment yet. Okay? The, the one-hour intravenous infusion works by providing a functional copy of the gene known as SMN1, which the body needs to make a protein that is essential for the normal functioning of nerves which control muscle movements. I mean, that's super complex. I have no idea how they were able to come up with this treatment and successfully pull it off, but that's amazing that anything could do that. It makes me just marvel at science. Patients with SMA have a defective copy of that gene, so they have to fix the gene, effectively, which seems impossible. Like, I don't even know how they came up with this in theory, never mind in reality. They say Zolgensma passes into the nerve cells and provides instructions to the body to produce the protein to restore nerve function. It's truly incredible that this thing exists. You can see why it's as expensive as it is. About 40 babies are born each year with the more severe type 1 form of SMA that would benefit from the drug. And so they did the surgery at the university Hospitals in Bristol and Weston, uh, the NHS Foundation Trust, which includes Bristol Royal Hospital for Children, 
is one of only four centers across the country administering that gene therapy. So even there, only four of the hospitals are really equipped to handle such a thing. So only the NHS has approved this drug, and only four of the hospitals in the entire country can do this procedure. So the point of this story is that you have a, a drug that costs over $2 million, not even approved in other countries. It's the cure for this precious, beautiful little baby. Um, the parents had to pay $0.00, and, zero cents, and they did the treatment on Riley, and Riley is doing well. Isn't that amazing? This story, there's so much packed into this one little story, right? It busts up all these myths about single-payer systems, national health care systems. This idea that, you know, they're worse, they don't have nearly as much innovation, we're on the cutting edge because we're, so, you know, we're, we're much more for-profit and capitalistic with our entire health care and health insurance uh, industries. Well, they have this drug, they approve this drug, they can administer this drug, and the NHS is all government. Everything's government. It's not even just just no health insurance companies. It's also the health care providers are government. This is as government as it, this is as socialistic as you could get for a health care system, and this is what they were able to do. And the drug cost over $2 million dollars and the parents paid zero dollars and zero cents for it. So here comes the question. What would have happened to Riley if Riley was born in the U.S. and if they were U.S. citizens and not U.K. citizens? What would have happened? First of all, the drug isn't even approved here. It's not even approved here. Second of all, even if it was approved here, you know the way our system works. And you know that even if insurance would cover it, number one, they would fight to not cover it. But number two, even if they did cover it, you have a massive copay or deductible or something that they clonk you with over the head and say, you owe this much. And so either if Riley was in the U.S. and his family was in the U.S., either Riley would have died, Riley would have, I, would, I want to say, gotten the treatment, but perhaps it wouldn't have been covered and they wouldn't have been able to pay for it. They could have gone bankrupt. I don't even see a scenario in which Riley would have gotten the treatment. I can't even fathom that because it's not even approved here. The drug's not approved here, and even if it was approved here, insurance companies would try to wiggle out of paying for it because it's more experimental than proven, right? And by the way, so far, it looks like it worked for Riley. So I, I don't see any other scenario here. I don't see, even if they did somehow magically find a way to get Riley the drug, they could have gone bankrupt trying to pay for it. So I ask you, what system makes more sense? Now you could say, Kyle, this is an anecdote. Okay, but whenever you debate people on the issue of single-payer health care, Medicare for all, all the other side ever has is fucking anecdotes. And all I ever do usually is quote stats and facts. Like, for example, the Commonwealth Fund study, which looked at 11 of the modern healthcare systems in the world, and the U.S. ranked 11th out of 11. That's a fact. So I quote empirical stuff or objective stuff. Other people come back with subjective anecdotes. 
All right, if you want to play the anecdote game, I'll play the fucking anecdote game. Here's an anecdote. So go ahead. Talk about your waiting lines and whatnot. That's often what they go to when they talk about the single-payer health care systems. As if we don't have waiting lines here. Here we have waiting lines, and it's tied to the size of your wallet. There's 45,000 to 60,000 people that die every year because they can't get basic health care here. That's not a fucking waiting line? That's not a waiting line. Not only do we have a waiting line, there's up to 60,000 dead bodies on our waiting line. There they prioritize according to need. Here we prioritize according to social strata. Hey, how much money do you make? Let me, let me do a wallet biopsy. How's your insurance? All that stuff. When I saw the, the picture of Riley and I, I read the story, I was tearing up a little bit, you know, because I was thinking this poor baby wouldn't have made it in the U.S. And how many babies in the U.S. are born every year that have this and can't get the treatment, can't get the help? Healthcare, in my opinion, is a human right. Don't tell me we can spend $7 trillion blowing shit up in the Middle East and getting nothing out of it. But we can't have a single-payer health care system or a, any form of a universal health care system like every other developed country has it. Fuck right off from now until forever if you say that. Seriously, fuck off. It doesn't, at this point, at this late date, it doesn't even seem, seem like the opposition is being honest. And you guys know me. I'm, I'm like a stalwart and fundamentalist in my approach to this, where I always say give people the benefit of the doubt until they prove otherwise that they don't deserve it. So I treat everybody as an honest actor. But it seems now at this late date in this conversation about healthcare that anybody arguing against this stuff seems dishonest, right? Because every study that looks at it says we do worse than other developed countries. And, you know, if, the, if we're really just talking about funding differences, then why not just pay for it with taxes over everybody going out of pocket and a bunch of people go bankrupt? Medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy in the U.S. I don't see how anybody can come up with a coherent argument against this. And so if we're going to take every little anecdote to do a strike against the, uh, the universal health care systems, well, here's an anecdote in favor. I, I shudder at the thought of what would have happened to Baby Riley baby Riley was born in the U.S. I really do. I absolutely do. And by the way, I'll finish up with this. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, do yourself a favor and go watch the video of people in the U.K. reacting to how much U.S. healthcare costs out of pocket. Do yourself a favor and watch that video because then you'll really get a sense of just how screwed over we are because every single thing they're told, they are floored by. They can't believe it costs that much money because there costs nothing out of pocket, nothing. Our taxes go towards endless war and bailing out Wall Street and other corporations. Their taxes go towards baby Riley getting health care. Let me ask you, do you have a problem with the over $2 million being spent on baby Riley surgery? Is that going to keep you up at night? Are you mad because your money is being used in a way you don't approve of it being used? My guess is every fucking one of you is like, spend the money and save the baby. Spend the money and save the baby. We have over 330, 40 million people in this country. We can't pay 2 million to save a baby's life. Of course I'm in favor of saving the baby's life. Everybody would be in favor of that. So don't tell me that this is not something that the American people can get on board for. I'm sure all of them are already on board for it. Your government is screwing you. The health insurance companies are screwing you. The health care companies are screwing you. Our system is broken. Here's just a little glimpse into what it's like living under a more humanitarian system, a more 
rational, logical, civil system. This is what it's like. It's not like this nightmare here. All right, next. Fox News gave us a very Fox News moment. Had to share all this with you. Check it out. Starting with you, Bill Bennett, the haters never take a day off from hating. That is clear. Uh, And they never take a day off of getting the facts wrong. Uh, We know most of our forefathers, all of our main founding fathers, were against slavery, recognized the evils of it. There's a great piece to that end on heritage called 1776, not 1619. But I'll leave it to you. You know, they're so wrong on so much. Where to begin? That is special. So um, Kaylee says, Quote, all of our main founding fathers were against slavery, recognized the evils of it. Here are the facts. The majority of signers of the Declaration of Independence owned slaves. 41 of 56 of them owned slaves. And by the way, the percentage of the society that were slave owners was not that high. And But 41 of 56 of the founding fathers were slave owners. Now, by the way, yes, it's true that a lot of them were anti-slavery and even said they were anti-slavery while they owned slaves. But in my opinion, doesn't that make it worse? I think it makes it worse because it's not not like everybody had slaves. It was a relatively small percentage of the population. So you're part of that percentage and you're also saying, like, this is evil and this is wrong. Well, then do the right thing and free them. Free them. 41 of the 56. So here... Some that didn't own them, John Adams, Sam Adams, and Thomas Paine did not own them. And Ben Franklin did, John Hancock did, Patrick Henry did, John Jay did, Thomas Jefferson did, James Madison did, George Washington did. So, I mean, it's just, guys, it gets back to something we were just talking about, which is what the right wants to do is bias our education system in favor of American exceptionalism. So they want to try to make the case that we're an exceptional nation, we've always been an exceptional nation, and they sort of want to apologize for everything that we've done in the sense that they you know, sweep it under the rug. Any negative thing, act like the negative thing isn't actually a negative thing. Our story's perfect from beginning to end. And so they want to gloss over or omit or lie about a lot of stains on our history. They do. Um, you could just be honest about it, but no. I'm sure the way that they want to talk about the Trail of Tears and Westward Expansion, Manifest Destiny, Genocide of Native Americans, Segregation, Jim Crow, Slavery, Nuking Japanese Civilians, Japanese Internment, the way that they they either want to brush over that or give a biased perspective of it, this is what they do. This is what they do. Now, as I told you guys, like the 1619 Project, there were some pretty – big factual mistakes in that. And so the right pounces on that to say, see, the left wants to make the U.S. out to sound worse than it is. You guys, very clearly, based on this alone, want to make us out to sound better than we are. That's what you want to do. You want to say our mistakes aren't mistakes and gloss over it or mislead or lie about it. 41 of the 56 owned slaves. 
You don't think that's a relevant fact? You think it's a fair summation to say, and I quote, all of our main founding fathers were against slavery and recognized the evils of it. As 41 of 56 own them. Own them. All, listen, all I want to do is give people a real education, give people the real facts, and let them make their own mind up, let them form their own opinions. And so, again, that includes the negative stuff that we just talked about with the U.S., and it includes the positive stuff, you know? Talk about the amazing history in the U.S. of free speech, the amazing history of due process. Now, that was obviously thrown out the window in George W. Bush years and habeas corpus and continuing to the Obama years, so on and so forth. Talk about all the negative stuff, but also talk about the positive legacy. There's so much good. The Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King, the War on Poverty, um, the New Deal, Social Security, Medicare. We've done a lot of good things too, man. Talk about all of it. But they don't want to do that. They want to only give the positives, and then even when they discuss the negatives, they want to gloss over it or mislead you about it. That's what they do. So, guys, you're not going to be surprised to hear this, but super partisan actors are completely full of shit. And this is a great example. Okay. So Charlie Kirk went on Tucker Carlson's new show, and um, he seemed very confused here. He ended up arguing for left economic positions, even though the whole brand he built up is the opposite. And so what did they decide to do as soon as the Berlin Wall fell? And almost to the date, Russell Kirk was right. Mass immigration in 1990, George H.W. Bush signed in this compromise with Ted Kennedy to bring in millions of people unrestricted into our nation of this great bargain of cheap labor and then cheap votes. So both sides kind of got a win out of that. 1994, Bill Clinton signs NAFTA because we decided it would be a good idea to deindustrialize the backbone of our nation. And then 1999, one that might surprise people that as a conservative I think we should find disgusting was the repeal of Glass-Steagall, was when Bill Clinton went out of his way to pander to the financial services lobby that largely led to cheap money and I think the blurring of lines between commercial banking and investment banking. And then finally, China's entrance into the World Trade Organization in 2001, right? And all four of those things, I believe, is kind of, was the conservative movement or the people in charge chasing momentary pleasure and not preserving the good with no commitment to permanence or to trying to pass something that has worked that is moral and beautiful to my generation. All right, so let me walk you through this. Charlie Kirk, has his lane has always been, um, he was the more traditional conservative guy. He was the more libertarian on economics conservative guy. So in other words, much more like Ben Shapiro and the movement conservatives than like Steve Bannon and the paleo conservatives, Steve Bannon, Pat Buchanan, those paleo conservatives. So that was always his lane. That was what he would argue for. Then in the Trump years, Trump came along, and in the debates, he made some comments that other Republicans wouldn't make. Like, for example, he would talk about, I want to protect Social Security and Medicare. I want to stop outsourcing our jobs. He would hit NAFTA, among other things. And um, so Charlie Kirk 
I think what he did is he sensed uh, the popularity of Trumpism, and then he sort of changed his tune from the Ben Shapiro, more libertarian on economics line instead of populist, and he tried to sound a little more populist. And so the rhetoric was still, oh, I'm all about free markets, free markets, free markets, but then there would be deviations to the free market argument where he would bring up stuff like this, stuff like NAFTA, um, permanent normal trade relations with China, even brought up the Glass-Steagall repeal here. But here's where it just gets so absurd is that, so he talks about the Glass-Steagall repeal being wrong. He's correct about that. Trump, there was, I remember when there was a story about Trump where they were like, Trump is trying to get Glass-Steagall put into the Republican platform. Remember this at the convention in like 2016? Um, that was reported on. And see, here's the amazing thing. Guys, it was all a branding exercise because Donald Trump as president, he did none of those populist things that he said he was in favor of. So outsourcing increased under the Trump administration. It increased. Yes, he slapped down TPP, but when he renegotiated NAFTA, he put a lot of the provisions that were in the original TPP into the new NAFTA. It was a big giveaway to pharma, for example. So he didn't lift a finger to try to repeal Glass-Steagall. In fact, or excuse me, to try to bring back Glass-Steagall. In fact, he did the opposite. He did more deregulation. He gutted the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is an incredibly populist agency. It returns money to defrauded Americans from big financial institutions. Gutted the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, got rid of the regulations and dropped the lawsuits on the predatory payday loan industry. He did colossal deregulation. And uh, he did the 2017 tax cuts for the wealthy. 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. So in other words, Trump ran as a pseudo-populist, governed as a traditional conservative. He governed as George W. Bush on steroids. That's what he did. And Charlie Kirk was a huge defender of Trump. So which is it, Charlie? Are you going to defend Trump? who did standard, uh, you know, conservative Republican economics, who did standard Reaganomics, trickle-down economics, free market enterprise approach, laissez-faire capitalism. Are you going to defend that, which is what Trump is, or are you going to have it like what you said here? Because you can't have it both ways. Either, Either you support the things you said here, or you don't. And if you support the things you said here, you better vociferously condemn Trump right now. Because you say you support these things. Trump was bad on all of those issues you mentioned. So are you going to say, hey, he was wrong on all these issues. He was terribly wrong on all these issues. I'm calling it out because this is what I think on these issues, and it's not what he did. Are you going to do that? See, this is how you know he's either massively confused or this is dishonest. It's one or the other. Either you're confused about it all or it's dishonest. Because if I'm talking about what I support and the politician who I 100% backed and supported as president, if Bernie Sanders became president and he didn't fight for or lift a finger to do Medicare for all, or if he did the opposite, more people lost health insurance under his administration, I would have to call him out for that. I'd be like, I support Medicare for all, and the guy who I thought supported Medicare for all didn't lift a finger for it, and if anything, more people lost health insurance. He didn't do the right thing. I'm calling him out. That's what I would do, because that's intellectually honest. But what he's doing is he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. Let me argue for left economics when I previously used to argue for right-wing economics, and let me argue for left economics when the president I supported implemented hard right economics. So which is it? 
See, my sense of it is this, guys. Everybody senses the way the winds of the country, and they know that working people are getting screwed now, and they're not doing too well, and so they want help. They know the government can be used for good now. Just like we cut some checks. Trump cut $600 check, Biden cut a $1,400 check, expanded the child tax credit, things of that nature. People are like, oh, shit, the government can do good things. So now people expect the government to do decent things. And in that political environment, you can't hold on to the old movement conservatism and the Ben Shapiro line of free market, free market, free market, go fuck yourself, the government shouldn't do anything to help you. So this is, this is a, an attempt to go along with the times and say, yeah, NAFTA was bad, Glass-Steagall repeal was bad, permanent normal trade relations with China was bad. Um, and the mass immigration thing, I mean, again, this, this is what these guys do is they talk about that as if, Immigrants are the reason why working people are screwed in this country. No, it's not. Immigrants and, and working people are in the same boat. And it's the 1% who rigged the system and is stealing all the money and running out the back door with it. So that's where you stop scapegoating people who are more poor and worse off than you. Put the blame where it actually belongs. But that's neither here nor there. He's confused. Charlie Kirk is a very confused man. He went from arguing, left, uh, went from arguing standard libertarian Republican um, economic arguments. He went from that to let me follow Trump and start sounding mildly populist to watching Trump not be populist at all and do standard right-wing economics to ignoring that and still pretending to be somewhat populist on economics. I just don't see I just don't see a very straightforward honest conversation happening here. I see uh, some wave riding or I see confusion, or I see dishonesty. But I definitely don't see a straightforward argument and beliefs that never changed, or um, I, I sense a little opportunism, too. Okay, everybody's going that way, so let me, let me pretend to be populist. And guess what? Final point is this. Tucker and Charlie Kirk, even though every now and then they say these things that seem mildly populist on economics, all of the politicians who they end up supporting and cheerleading, none of them do populist economics at all. So don't give me that shit about I'm a populist. And the, like Josh Hawley pretends to be a populist. He wasn't even for $15 minimum wage. He was, he was against um, pro-union legislation. Don't tell me you're a populist on economics. You're against $15 minimum wage and against pro-union legislation. That means you're not a populist. That's what that means. And every now and then, if you deviate from the line, but you end up voting, like fucking Mitch McConnell, I'm not going to give you credit for that. I don't care if you pretend to sound like Noam Chomsky, then you vote like Mitch McConnell. If you pretend to sound like Noam Chomsky, and then you vote like Mitch McConnell, or back people who vote like Mitch McConnell, you're a lot more like Mitch McConnell. And that sort of sums up the entire thing here about Charlie Kirk and Tucker. They could pretend to sound like Noam Chomsky as much as they want, but if at the end, all of that support that they're garnering is redirected to support standard Republican politicians, it's bullshit. And if anything, it's even more nefarious because at least Ben Shapiro is open and honest and upfront about the things he believes, and they're bad. These guys are not open and upfront and honest, but they support the same bad people. So there you have it. All right, next. All right, guys, so um, 
I've been very annoyed lately with how the media talks about the COVID vaccine. I think it's really, really irresponsible. And I think uh, some freakishly high percentage of the population just reads the headline on stuff. And so you have to make sure the headline is as accurate as possible on issues involving the vaccine because it's very serious. Let me just give you a few examples here. The Hill says Pfizer vaccine less effective against Delta variant. Okay, I don't think that's a good way of discussing it. I think that's very bad. Um, The Wall Street Journal says data from Israel shows Pfizer's vaccine protected 64% of inoculated people during an outbreak of the Delta variant, down from 94% before, but retains its potency to prevent severe illness. Okay, so again, I don't like this one because that last line, but retains its potency to prevent severe illness, that actually is the bigger story. And I'm going to make the case to you here that the way they talk about the vaccines across virtually all of the media is wrong. When they cite the 64% number, that is wildly misleading. So I don't want you to take my word for it, although we will come back and talk about it. What I want to do here is show, what I want to do is show you the best breakdown of how the vaccines work and how effective they really are that I've ever seen. So this is a segment from Vox. This is a good example of how to responsibly talk about the vaccines in a more accurate way that isn't misleading. Take a look and then we'll discuss. This is the new one-dose COVID-19 vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. In early March, more than 6,000 doses were supposed to be shipped to the city of Detroit, Michigan. But the mayor said, no thanks. Moderna and Pfizer are the best and I am going to do everything I can to make sure the residents of the city of Detroit get the best. He was referring to these numbers, the vaccine's efficacy rates. The vaccines from Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna have super high efficacy rates, 95 and 94%. But Johnson & Johnson, just 66. And if you only look at these numbers, it's natural to think that these vaccines are worse than these. But that assumption is wrong. These numbers are arguably not even the most important measure of how effective these vaccines are. To understand what is, you first have to understand what vaccines are even supposed to do. A vaccine's efficacy rate is calculated in large clinical trials when the vaccine is tested on tens of thousands of people. Those people are broken into two groups. Half get the vaccine and half get a placebo. Then they're sent out to live their lives while scientists monitor whether or not they get COVID-19 over several months. In the trial for Pfizer-BioNTech, for example, there were 43,000 participants. In the end, 170 people were infected with COVID-19. And how those people fall into each of these groups determines a vaccine's efficacy. If the 170 were evenly split, that would mean you're just as likely to get sick with the vaccine as without it. So it would have a 0% efficacy. If all 170 were in the placebo group and zero people who got the vaccine were sick, the vaccine would have an efficacy of 100%. With this particular trial, there were 162 in the placebo group and just eight in the vaccine group. It means those who had the vaccine were 95% less likely to get COVID-19. 
the vaccine heading 95% efficacy. Now, this doesn't mean if 100 people are vaccinated, five of them will get sick. Instead, that 95% number applies to the individual. So each vaccinated person is 95% less likely than a person without a vaccine to get sick each time they're exposed to COVID-19. And every vaccine's efficacy rate is calculated in the same way. But each vaccine's trial might be done in very different circumstances. So one of the biggest considerations here uh, when we look at these numbers is the timing in which these clinical trials were performed. This is the number of daily COVID-19 cases in the U.S. since the pandemic began. The Moderna trial was done completely in the U.S. here in the summer. The Pfizer-BioNTech trial was primarily based in the U.S. too, and at the same time. Johnson & Johnson, however, held their U.S. trial at this time, when there were more opportunities for participants to be exposed to infections. And most of their trials took place in other countries, primarily South Africa and Brazil. And in these other countries, not only were case rates high, but the virus itself was different. The trials took place as variants of COVID-19 emerged and became dominant infections in these countries, variants that are more likely to get participants sick. In South Africa, most of the cases in the Johnson & Johnson trial were that of the variant, not the original strain that was in the U.S. over the summer. And despite that, it still significantly reduced infection. If you're trying to make one-to-one, head-to-head comparisons between vaccines, they need to have been studied in the same trial with the same inclusion criteria in the same parts of the world at the same time. If we were to take Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine and redo their clinical trial at the same time that we saw the J&J's clinical trial, we might see quite different efficacy numbers for those. These efficacy numbers really just tell you what happened in each vaccine's trial, not exactly what will happen in the real world. But many experts argue this isn't even the best number to judge a vaccine by anyway, because preventing any infection at all is not always the point of a vaccine. The goal of a vaccine program for COVID-19 is not necessarily to get to COVID-0, but it's to tame this virus, to defang it, to remove its ability to cause serious disease, hospitalization, and death. It helps to look at the different outcomes of an exposure to COVID-19 like this. The best case scenario is you don't get sick at all. The worst case is death. In between, there's being hospitalized, severe to moderate symptoms, or having no symptoms at all. In the absolute best circumstances, vaccines give you protection all the way to here. But realistically, that isn't the main objective of COVID-19 vaccines. The real purpose is to give your body enough protection to cover these possibilities. So if you do get an infection, it feels more like a cold than something you'd be hospitalized for. And this is one thing that every one of these COVID-19 vaccines do well. In all these trials, while some people in the placebo groups were hospitalized or even died from COVID-19, not one fully vaccinated person in any of these trials was hospitalized or died from COVID-19. One thing that I wish that Mayor would have understood was that all three vaccines have essentially 100% effectiveness in protecting from death. So that mayor who originally rejected the Johnson & Johnson shots because 
he thought, understandably, it's just not as good as, at the, as the other shots, so why would I accept, accept them? They're only 66% effective or whatever the number was. He was like, that's ridiculous. Why would I accept them? But then when the experts explained to him, that's not the way it works, dog, and they explained, they walked him through it, he was like, oh. Yeah, see, this is what I mean. The way that the media discusses this is flat-out irresponsible and misleading. The only number that should be cited, the, the most important number is, I would argue, hospitalizations and death. So basically like severe symptoms, hospitalization, and death. So if you have the vaccine and you get COVID, but you don't have any symptoms, if you have the vaccine and you get COVID, but you have the sniffles, even if you have the vaccine and you're like regular schmegular sick for three days, that vaccine is doing work. That vaccine is helping you big time. Because if you didn't have the vaccine, it's very likely that the no symptom person would have had the sniffles or the person with the sniffles would have had the moderate regular symptoms or the person with the moderate regular symptoms could have been hospitalized, could have maybe died. So in other words, the vaccine is still doing work in those instances, but it just doesn't count in their favor. The only number that should be cited is the protection against hospitalization and death or the protection against severe symptoms and death. That's the only relevant number, in my opinion, in my opinion, okay, is as long as it's preventing severe symptoms and death, it's fucking working. It's working really well. And so then here's the question. How effective is it in this study? It was 97% effective, 97% effective against the original uh, COVID variant. And now it dropped a whopping 3% to 94% effective. So it's 94% effective against hospitalization and death. It's 94% effective against severe symptoms and worse. So if you have it, it helps colossally. I don't even know why they even bothered coming out with the numbers the way they do, because I think it's incredibly misleading. But credit to this mayor, because as soon as it was explained to him, he was like, oh. So, that, by the way, that's why they approved the, the Johnson & Johnson shot. They approved it because they don't look at that 66% number. They look at how is it at preventing hospitalizations and deaths. And in the trial, it was 100% effective. All of the original trials of the vaccines were 100% effective against hospitalization and death, which is why they were all approved. Even the AstraZeneca one, 100% effective. Even, if I think, the Russian one, 100% effective against hospitalization and death in the trials. Now, by the way, you might be thinking now, well, wait, hold on. There have been some stories of people who were fully vaccinated and then were hospitalized and died. And that's correct. But that is so, 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 so rare. So rare. So, anyway, I needed to do this segment because it's really been driving me crazy, seeing them cite this 60-whatever percent number against the Delta variant, and when we saw the original 66% effective of the Johnson & Johnson. As soon as I researched it and learned more, I was like, that's so misleading, they shouldn't even be saying it. Because that, guess what happens? That leads to more vaccine hesitancy. That's what that does. It leads to more vaccine hesitancy. So um, I felt compelled like I had to do this segment because even if, they're, even if they're more explicit in the articles, the headlines are actually really important. And anything that's really undermining the efficacy, I think, is total bullshit. And a lot of these things are either inadvertently or on purpose undermining the efficacy and making people more hesitant when now's the time where it should be the exact opposite. 
you know, people should really be encouraged and incentivized to go do the right thing so we all get the herd immunity and we could fight back against the next spike. And by the way, there is another spike going on right now. It's mostly happening in unvaccinated areas. Article came out yesterday. 100% of the people who died in Maryland last month um, were all unvaccinated. So there are the facts. You do with them what you will. All right, next. So we have another trial on a four-day work week that just came out. This one is in Iceland. The BBC says, trials of a four-day week in Iceland were an overwhelming success and led to many workers moving to shorter hours, researchers have said. The trials in which workers were paid the same amount for shorter hours took place between 2015 and 2019. Productivity remained the same or improved in the majority of workplaces, researchers said. Wow. A number of other trials are now being run across the world, including Spain and New Zealand. In Iceland, the trials run by Reykjavik City Council and the national government eventually included more than 2,500 workers, which amounts to 1% of Iceland's working population. A range of workplaces took part, including preschools, offices, social services, providers, and hospitals. Many of them moved from a 40-hour week to 35 or 36-hour week. Researchers from the UK think tank, Autonomy, and the Association for Sustainable Democracy in Iceland said, um, I think, hold on one second here. I believe I have a couple more lines of this. Wait for it. The trials led unions to renegotiate working patterns, and now 86% of Iceland's workforce have either moved to shorter hours for the same pay or will gain the right to. They'll gain the right to work four uh, days instead of five days. That's amazing. Workers reported feeling less stressed and at risk of burnout and said their health and work-life balance had improved. They also reported having more time to spend with their families, do hobbies, and complete household chores. So they're saying, everybody's saying it, all the articles are saying it, the trial here was an overwhelming success. Instead of working 40 hours, what if you worked 35 hours, but you were just as productive, if not more productive, and you're happier because you get to do other stuff that that really fulfills you. I love that 86% of the work, they do the trial and now 86% of the workforce is gonna have the option to work for the same pay and only work four days instead of five and lower their hours by about five. I, it, I can never in a million years imagine that happening in the US. It should, it should, but they said the unions negotiated for it and apparently won. Like universal unionization be kind of nice. Wouldn't it be nice if like 70% of the U.S. workforce was unionized? The, the working class would be so much healthier if that was the case, man. So much healthier. But listen, as I tell you guys every time we talk about this issue, there was a time um, during the Great Depression in the process of crafting the New Deal where we almost got a four-day work week. We almost got a 30-hour work week. Um, in fact, it, it was in a bill that passed the House but it didn't get through the Senate, and there was some other compromise made on another issue involving the New Deal. Um, and even back then, you know, you read presidents in the early 1900s, Republican presidents were saying things like, people should get paid time off by law. You should get at least a month or two off by, paid by law. Back then, the conservative Republicans sounded like Bernie Sanders today on that issue, and nobody bad an eyelash. Everybody was like, yeah, of course. 
we got industrialization, these machines are coming up. Soon they're going to do the work for us and we're going to get the pay. It's going to be awesome. We'll only have to work like, like didn't uh, Keynes thought that by like this era, we'd only have to work like 15 hours a week because technology would take care of it for us. And we have the capability for that to be the case. The system is not rational, so we haven't adjusted to that in a positive way. Of course, you have 1% reaping all the rewards and everybody else is screwed. But I love this, man. Four-day work week is becoming a real thing around the world with all these trials. All of them are successful. Other trials where virtually everything's been successful is UBI trials. Imagine if we had a UBI and imagine if we had a four-day work week. Just on that alone, the alleviation of some anxiety and depression and other symptoms that people have psychologically, I think that alone would help so much, so much. But, of course, we're going to drag behind the rest of the world on this front, too. I just hope... I just hope this movement keeps spreading because all I'm seeing is positive things about it. Okay. All right, guys. That's all I got for you today. I got some other stuff, but I'll save it. I'll save it for the future. They're not really exactly time sensitive. So, all right. Love you guys. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.